Amen. So if you would, take open your Bibles and turn to John 1. My goal today is to present this in a much more coherent nature than last week, right? And if you have your notes, there are definitely some things that we want to go through at the beginning because we've been doing a series called Foundational Framework, where if you notice, the number on there says 44. You guys are the picture of endurance, setting through the same sermon series for 44 Sundays. That's pretty amazing. But I'll be honest with you, we don't have anywhere else to go but the Bible, so let's not worry about how many it is, right? Here's what we've seen so far. If you start at Genesis and you work your way... If the Spirit's moving, I need to get out of the way. I don't know. All things in decency and order, right? So, praise the Lord. If you start at the beginning of Genesis and you work your way through, here are some basic foundational things that you find, and you can find them at the top of your notes. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. This is how God wants to reveal himself to you and I. He does so through creation. He does so through the implanted conscience that we have. But the Bible is the means of which he desires to be known. And make no mistake, God wants every single person to know him. The next one, he is eternal. He's always been, he always will be. He is sovereign. He is the one who has the right to rule. And also he is a creator. He is the one who spoke, and when there was nothing, there then became everything that he desired. He speaks things into being, and he does so in such a way as to where it is completely consistent with his nature. Now, whenever we came in today, Jim and Sue had real deep questions to ask about the nature of the Trinity before creation ever began, and so we talked about it. If you want to have your mind blown, talk to these two, because now they're all PhDs in the Trinity, they can be able to tell you all about what's going on with it now. Very, very good conversation we had. But everything that he creates is good. Why is that? Because he is good. It is ridiculous to think that God would do anything whatsoever that would somehow violate who he is. God is the most honest person in existence. Everything he does is not only true, but he defines what true is. Very important to understand. The next one, we, we find out, especially Adam and Eve, and we have that unfold, are responsible. You and I are responsible. You may not feel responsible. You may be trying to shirk responsibility. The millennial age is, no, I'm not responsible, I'm entitled. Wrong. Entitlement is not a biblical standard. Responsibility is. We are all responsible to a holy, sovereign God, regardless if we want to think that we are or not. Whatever we believe about the subject does not change the truth of the subject. That's important. So we are all responsible. And in being responsible, we are held to a moral standard. Who sets the moral standard? God. Why? He's in charge. He is the creator of it. The next one, sin originates within us. And it separates us from God. God does not put sin within you and I. You and I are perfectly capable of sinning without God trying to do something to violate who he is in order to make that happen. You and I sin. We sinned this morning. Anybody sin last night? Oh, okay. Maybe I need to preach a different message. Did anybody sin last night? Oh, yeah. Woo! 
There's some sin up in my house, man. <laughs> I love that you guys are honest. That's a good sign, right? A little bit too easy to admit that, but I like it. Good. Because that shows our need for the Savior, right? So yeah, having to come to Him and confess things, absolutely, amen. It separates us from God. That's what the idea of being dead is. Dead does not mean absence of existence. The idea of being dead means that you are separated in some way. That's what spiritual death is. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you are a dead person. Like, no, I'm not. I'm breathing and chewing gum. No, you're dead. You may be living. You may be walking. You may be talking. You may be moving. But as far as what it looks like in the eyes of God, there is no life in you. Therefore, you are separated from him, and that is a major problem that hopefully today you will rectify before the Lord. The next one, the fifth one. God declares one righteous by faith alone apart from works. Because God is righteous, the only way to be in a relationship with him is to have a righteousness like his. In order for that to take place, We've spent all of our lives trying to scrounge and dig in our pockets and pull out the lint of whatever we could possibly conjure so that God will accept us. We don't have it. One of the greatest places that you can ever go to in life is at the end of yourself. Because at the end of yourself, you can finally get beyond yourself in order to see God clearly. God has provided righteousness, and it has to be by faith alone, because if you are trying to bring any kind of, well, I promise I won't do that anymore, anybody know what that's called? It's called a liar, that's what that's called, right? Well, I promise I won't ever sit, I won't ever talk that way anymore. Liar! Exactly, because it's going to happen. And so what we've got to do is get beyond ourselves, and if I need a righteousness like God's, who offers that righteousness. God offers that righteousness and he offers it freely. And that's why the question is, do you believe it? Not, are you going to behave now? Aren't you thankful that John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever behaves in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I think we would be in trouble. Thank the Lord it says believes. Are you convinced that it's true? The next one, and this is an important one. The glory of God is the centerpiece and goal of all existence. Why are people on earth? Why is there ministry for us to do? Why do you work where you work? Why do you have the friends that you have? Why do you have a Bible in your hands, in your possession? One reason and one reason only, if you boil it down, to give glory to God. His glory is the pinnacle of all. And why is that? Because he is the creator and we are his creatures. The hierarchy goes one way. And it's all glory to him. But here's the interesting thing. God will make sure this happens because God's glory is maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. There will come a day when history is over and Jesus Christ will return. And he will establish his kingdom on earth. And in doing so, he will reign righteously. And he doesn't desire anybody to be reigned against, but instead for people to reign alongside him. That's how gracious he is. 
And so that's why the offer of salvation in believing in Christ is made. Everybody good? We're caught up. Who said that? Man, loud. Nobody wants to admit it? If you're going to say it, admit it. All right. John chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was, past tense, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was, past tense, life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light that all who believe through him, sorry, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness... We have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is the reintroduction of God into civilization. While God is omnipresent and He doesn't ultimately go anywhere, His manifested presence had left Israel. And it had left Israel after years and years and years of rampant idolatry and a dismissal of continual truth messages sent through people called the prophets in order to wake people up from their cultural surroundings. Israel had become more like the world than they had about what God had called them to be. And so now you have an introduction of the person of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about this. Jesus Christ is everything that God has ever wanted to say to the world. And so he chooses to do so by revealing him, number one, as the Word. The Word has always existed with God, alongside God, in communion with God, and is God. Now the reason why this Word is so significant when he says the Word, capital W, is because in the essence of Greek thought, they considered that to be the rational principle that held everything together. 
When you dealt with Jewish thought, you were dealing with what was actually spoken forward in order for the world to be created as God would do so. So you find this introduction that John pens satisfying the criteria of both people who would have been his audiences at the time. If you notice in verse 3, we have this idea that all things came into being through him. John makes no mistake about taking such origins as the creation account of Yahweh God in the Old Testament and bringing it in in order to put that exact same imprint upon who Jesus Christ is. To John, there is no difference. Yahweh is Christ. Christ is Yahweh. They are inseparable. Verse 4 says, In Him was life. Not only did the Trinity exist before creation, but they carried with them life. Life of an eternal nature. That life exists in abundance in them. That's why when somebody responds to the gospel and they believe in Jesus Christ and they are given eternal life as a free gift because they have believed, it is a life that has always been with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and will always be with them. It cannot be lost by the very definition of its character, past, present, future, and its name. If eternal life isn't forever, Charles Ryrie says, somebody gave it the wrong name. Everybody with me? Everybody real serious this morning? Praise the Lord. All right, let's move forward seriously. So notice, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Make no mistake about this. When we talk about deadness, spiritual deadness being a separation, being a separation from God, only... Christ gives life. Only Christ gives life. If we've somehow come to the table thinking that, well, if I'm just a better person, or even in this Christian rut we get in, if I could just pray more, well, I really need to be reading my Bible more. Those are all really good things. But it doesn't make God love you more. Why is that? Because in His grace, at our worst, He loves us maximum from the get-go. That's just who He is. We can't ask him to be more of what he is when he's already maximum him. Does that make sense? Good. Okay, we got that. Yeah. So notice, we're getting all philosophical today. It's good stuff. So notice this next part, and it's the light of men. Understand this. When Jesus Christ steps into history, and it's, isn't it amazing where God just wasn't like Jesus, and then there he is? No, he's born. Now, that's a weird way for God to come into the world, let's be honest. But then he grows up. And he has, sorry to kill your Catholic hopes, he has siblings. Mary and Joseph had kids. Lots of them. Six that we can count. They were a happily married couple. Amen. Who said that? Praise God, Steve. Yeah. If I didn't have to put my armpit over Lucy, I'd high-five you on that. That's a good one. But yeah, because there's everything godly and healthy about it. In bringing about Jesus Christ, he grows up. The book of Hebrews even tells us he learned obedience. I can't understand that. He's perfectly God and perfectly man. What in the world's going on there? Here's my theological answer. I don't know. 
But we know that the Word tells us very clearly. This is how he grew up, and this is what it was. And because he came on the scene, there was something about him that radiated, not physically, but there's something about him that just got people's attention. It wasn't his looks. It wasn't that he levitated. That walking on water thing probably got a few attentions, right? But it was in the way that he had to speak with with people. And here's what God did. When God brought Jesus into this world, he put a dividing line to where everybody needs to make a decision about who he is. There is no fence here. There's none. You can't be indecisive about Christ because he doesn't let you. By him showing up, he has given exposure to the truth. He is the light. Now watch what it says after that. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Why? Because everything else is darkness but him. So there's something about him that brings the attention out because of the contrast. He says here, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, here's an interesting thing about this Greek word. This word comprehend here can also be understand as the, understood as the idea of did not overcome him or did not over take him did not overshadow him in any way but it can also be understand is the darkness did not grasp him they couldn't handle it they couldn't get it jesus was too true for them is the idea now the amazing thing is is why would you expose light if you didn't want people to find their way does everybody understand that this exposure of jesus christ is because Basic principle. God wants to be known. And the way that we primarily know him now is through his word. Guess what? This is just in the written form. The way that God wanted to be known in the first century is by exposing people to his word. Does everybody see that? And so he puts flesh on him and has him walk amongst people for 34, I believe it's 34. You can ask me about that later. Years. Some of you went, hmm. So you're going to be stuck on that and not hear anything else I say. But I love to like drop little things out there. But 34 years, and then he dies. And it seems like defeat overcame. Seems like the darkness won out. Remember, John is writing this way on the other side. It did not overcome him. Look how he moves this. Verse 6. It almost seems strange. There came a man sent from God, okay, whose name was John. Okay, so we got somebody who sent, his name was John, not the Apostle John who wrote this, but John the Baptist. It says here, verse 7, he came as a, what is it, church? Witness. What's a witness do? Testifies. You have been called up to the bench in order to give your eyewitness account of what you have seen. You are there to tell the truth, the whole truth. And nothing but the, man, the courts seem to kind of get it, don't they? They did. (laughs) Steve, you're going to get in trouble. (laughs) But notice, the idea is to testify. I solemnly swear to this fact. Excellent. What is that? Notice. He came as a witness to testify about what? The light. But notice what you have next. So that, here's your reason. Why is John the Baptist sent by God as a witness to testify to the light? So that, here is the reason, and we could stop on this and preach on it all day, so that all might believe through him. 
John's whole mission has one goal in mind. Everybody that hears him is to believe in Christ. He is a witness. He is here to testify. And his goal is to get people to believe. Is to tell the truth. I had a pastor friend call me from Utah. And he said, I'm looking at our church and the 20s and 30s are gone. We kind of start with the 40s and 50s, but the 20s and 30s are gone. And he said, you have a church of 20s and 30s, don't you? I said, well, not really now. And he said, oh, what happened? So I told him about moving up here. And he said, but your last church, wasn't it 20s and 30s? I said, yes, for six years I was the oldest person in the church. He said, how do you reach them? I said, you tell them the truth. He said, well, what's the problem going on here? I said, I'll be honest with you. We can do all the evangelism training in the world. We can learn all the doctrine in the world. We can know the Bible inside and out. We can memorize every piece of Scripture. But if our mouth never opens to tell the lost about salvation in Christ, it does not matter. But I wasn't sent from God. You don't know your Bible. Well, what am I supposed to say? You don't know your Bible. John's not much different from you and I. He was a witness. You and I are witnesses. He's going to testify to something. Guess what you and I get to do? Get this. Notice I said get to do. Not have to do. You get to do this. It's a privilege. You and I contain the very news that when you speak it to someone and if they believe, if they are convinced that it is true, it actually has the power to bring them from a state of separation with the Most High Creator into a place of blessed blessed privilege and embrace of God Almighty. And it's all sitting here the whole time waiting to be dispensed. Now you read about John the Baptist, you find out well, he dressed weird. Camel's hair, and leather belt, he was eating locusts. It's probably a paleo diet, I don't know. But what we do know about him, what we do know about him is that he was one thing. And I'll be honest with you, church, it ain't anything different than what you and I are called to do. He was obedient. What does God have for me to do? That's what I'm going to do. And that was the end of it. I love it because they're like, well, John spent some time praying about it before he went out and shared the gospel with people. Is that what he did? No, he knew what needed to be done. And so he testified. And it's very interesting to see that after a five-verse introduction of the Word being life and being light, we now need somebody to talk about the light. So let's talk about who brought this message of the light coming into the world. Why? So that all may believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light. Now that's important. Because in witnessing, the goal isn't to draw the attention to yourself. Why? Because you and I can't save anybody. We can't even save ourselves, much less anybody else. So let's not pretend that that's us. Notice, John understood that. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world, being manifest, right, tabernacling amongst us, enlightens every man. 
And that enlightenment handles in basic form by just the fact that there is order in creation, just the fact that you have a conscience that tells you what is right and wrong, but also very much so in the person of who Jesus is. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, but think about it for a second. When's the last time you told a lost person about Jesus? Could you not find one? That's one of the ruts that pastors run into. I spend all my time with saved people, right? So I got to find opportunities and nooks and crannies to get into in order to talk to lost people. When's the last time you talked to a lost person about Jesus? Now think about this. Who's the lost person you know in your life that you need to talk about Jesus? You see what I'm saying? There's a big difference between knowing the person that needs to hear the gospel and the fact of whether or not we even open our mouth to tell them the gospel. But that's going to make me weird. You're already weird. Newsflash. Okay? So this ain't going to hurt you at all. It's actually going to be very pleasing to God. He's going to love it. So there's, there's, there's great, great opportunity before us all the time. Opportunities that need to be taken lovingly, graciously, calmly. It's the gospel. So notice it says here, verse 10, he was in the world. And the world was made through him. That takes us back to verse 3, right? All things were made through him. But here's the crazy thing. The world did not know him. The world did not know him. That's like you driving a Dodge and all of a sudden the Dodge brothers are sitting there watching you drive around in their car. Why are you looking at my car? Well, we actually made it. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange that the one who fastened it, planned it, created it, put all of our chemicals in order in our body, and put all the people together and allotted where they should live, at what time in history they should live, and everybody has no regard for who he is. We don't have time for Jesus. He was just a crazy man. He was just a good teacher. He was a kind person. He loved everybody. He never had anything to say about that subject. And we've got all these opinions about him, but we never deal with him. The world is in denial. Here's the worst part. This is a tragic verse. Verse 11. He came to his own. Who are his own? The Jews. He came to the Jews. Wait a second. Are you talking about the people who had the initial point of revelation and called Abraham their father and then had Isaac and then had Jacob and Jacob had 12 sons and then they went into Egypt and God revealed himself and overthrew all the false demons that were there and cast it all out and destroyed the world's superpower and led them through the water and all of a sudden gave them the law and led them by fire and by cloud by day? Is this the God we're talking about? Are these the Jews we're talking about? Is this the relationship? Yeah, we're talking about that. We're talking about the previous 39 books before you step into the New Testament, all revealed to the Jews. Now think about that and read this verse. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Get this. His chosen people who had maximum revelation denied him. I mean, wasn't the leaders of the Jews who said, crucify him, crucify him, and started that chant? 
who whipped up the people, who wanted to bring false accusers against him? Wasn't it Jews who did that? Yeah. When this big, long-awaited promise of a deliverer who was going to show up and finally rescue us from this Roman oppression and everything that's going on and usher in this great, amazing kingdom so that the Lord God would reign forever and ever, and he don't look like we thought he did. He probably should dress better. Well, how come he's not on a white horse? He doesn't even have a sword. How's he going to save us? Uh Uh-oh, he's healing people. He's breaking our rules. I know what we should do. Let's kill him. Everybody see how twisted that is? He healed him on the Sabbath. How dare he? How dare you do something good for somebody on the Sabbath? But notice, that's just how religious they were. And when they put that equation together, the conclusion was death? Really? How can we work the system to murder this man? Amazing. So they did not receive him. Now what does it mean by receive him? Verse 12. But as many as received him. Notice that. It's not hopeless. I love that. Verse 12 is is a really good uh, swing back up here. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now stop. This word right is an awesome word. It's exousia in the Greek. It's the idea of power or authority. If you have heard the good news about Christ and you have received him, and real quick, what does it mean to receive him? Read the rest of it. Even to those who, what's the word? Believe in his name. To receive Christ is to believe in Christ. John's very clear here. He uses receive twice, and he equates it or he interprets it with the word believe. If you have believed Christ, you have the authority and the power to be claiming as God's child, fully accepted. Now, this is pretty good for some people who were separated and spiritually dead away from him. That's a good, that's a good take that deal, Right? This is a grand adoption. And this isn't an adoption like, well, we're going to bring you into the family, but we're still always going to think of you as kind of the redheaded stepchild off to the side on the stool. It's not that. It is fully brought in, fully embraced, fully loved, having all rights and privileges as any legitimate child of that family and one who will also receive inheritance from their father. This is a good deal. This is God setting up to bridge the gap of all destruction and death and saying, cross over freely, come over here. There's nothing to lose. The gospel almost seems too good to be true here. Why do people walk away from it? If by believing in Christ, you actually have the right It is my right. I am God's child. Do you realize how powerful that is? You are God's child. God loves his kids. You're his. You belong to him. Nothing can negate that relationship. Some of you have maybe had issues and earthly fathers in the past 
Sometimes we project that upon God. Let me assure you, if that relationship was bad, this one is not. You have all the full rights and privileges and acceptance because Christ has made it so. It says here, you become children of God even to those who believe in His name. Now watch this. Who were born, number one, not of blood. In other words, it's not human descent. Just because my mama's a Christian doesn't mean that I'm a Christian. That's the idea. Notice the next one here. Not just of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, human desire or personal effort. In fact, if you look over at John chapter 3, verse 6, it says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, it's not through copulation that you become a Christian. It's not like that. Notice the next one. It says, nor of the will of man. And this could probably be a little bit better translated as nor the will of the husband. The reason is, is because in first century Jewish society, it was the husband who made the plan of how many kids a family was going to have. And so notice, it's not because you are having earthly family planning that somehow this is going to bring about the born again process. No, the only person that can make us born again is one person. Notice at the end, it's but of God. That is who it is. It's born from above. Some people have said it this way. You can live this life once and you can die twice. You can die physically and you can die spiritually because you're apart from Christ. But you can live this life and live again because you have been born again and only die once in the physical here. That might be a good way to think about it. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. This is the incarnation. Finally, John puts flesh on his words. This is Jesus being born. And he dwelt, he tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory. Glory of the only begotten. That word there means the unique. There's never been one like him. Of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This idea is John's recounting when he and James and Peter were brought up to the mount, and Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. And they saw him at that moment in his full glory. John is saying, he actually exposed me to his glorified form. Moving on here. It's of the only begotten from the Father, notice that, full of what? Grace and truth. Now we're going to run into some problems here. Because grace is the unmerited favor of God towards infinitely ill-deserving people. In other words, God likes you based on nothing in you. God likes me based on nothing in me. He is gracious in that. But truth sets a standard. Now why are we going to run into trouble? Let's keep moving forward. Verse 15, John testified, there it is again, about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. In other words, John grasps two major things about Jesus. Number one, that he's eternal. This is the one that I've been telling you about who has always been. Or we're probably familiar when the, when the scriptures say, this is the one of whom I am not even worthy to tie his shoelaces, right? He is the one who comes after me. He's actually the one who was before me. There's something about, I mean, John's a weird cat, guys. He is. It even says, if you look in Luke, that he was full of the Holy Spirit while in the womb. I don't know what that is. But obviously, God had a specific purpose for bringing it about. 
So there's something about him that he understands about Jesus in the beginning of his earthly ministry when he is testifying. And the number one thing that he wants to bring out is the fact that he is eternal. Number two, he brings out the fact that he is superior. Now, this is amazing for John. Why? Because John's ministry was out in the desert. Anybody plan on going to the desert for vacation? No one? No one's like, hey, Sahara, that's where we're at, right? No, why? Because there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Except somehow John found some water, right? And so everybody started coming out. In fact, the scriptures say all Judea and Jerusalem, Judea, the southern province down there, was coming out into the wilderness in order to be baptized by him. Something's going on. People don't just travel out into the desert for fun. It's not funsies out there. So John's obviously got a message that he is communicating to them about not just the eternal nature, but the superior nature of God. Regardless of however successful we believe that John the Baptist's ministry is, and even Jesus said, there's not one born of a woman that is greater than John the Baptist. Regardless of what that is, the reason that his ministry was great is because he constantly was pointing people to the coming Savior. That's the reason why. That's what made his ministry worthwhile. That's what made people get up out of their houses and stop doing their jobs and go out into the desert in order to listen. Does everybody see this? This is why it is important for us to be testifying about the gospel. Verse 16, for of his fullness, the Greek word here is pleroma, the idea of his abundance is what it is. Of his abundance we have all received, now watch this, and grace upon grace. Or in other words, in Jesus' life, all he did was display maximum grace. One thing that I wrote said it was just one gracious gift on top of another. Jesus just kept giving and giving and giving and giving when people were so undeserving. Now, here's a mistake that we often make, and here's what I was talking about, getting us in trouble with the grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Everybody got that? Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Does everybody see there's not a but there? Notice it doesn't say, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Does anybody think that's weird? Notice this isn't a contrast. Or what if we did this? For the law was given through Moses. How many of you would go, Anybody? Sometimes we have this idea about the law of the law is bad. The law makes me look bad. I don't like the law. Boo law. No law keepers, right? That kind of thing. We do that, right? Anybody? Am I the only person that ever felt that way in my life? You guys don't want to admit it. Okay? Liars equal lawbreakers. Good. But there's this tendency sometimes to sit there and go, boo law, right? No, not on the law side. Stop. Is the law true? Is it God's truth? How can it be bad? It's only bad because it tells us how bad we are. The thing that's bad in relation to the law is not the law. It's me. I'm the problem with the law. So notice, the law came through Moses. Was that a good thing? Yeah. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, when I have a knowledge of sin, what does it do? It lets me know I need a Savior. But look what the next part says. And remember, there's not a but there. What does it say? Grace 
and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In other words, God had revealed the truth of himself in the unfolding of the law at a point in history through the man Moses. But now, at this time in history, God is unfolding the far extents of what grace and truth look like. In other words, the revelation of God is progressing forward in the timeline in order to display a further elaboration of the truth. Or, let's say it this way, through Jesus Christ, you know more about God than what you did when you just had Exodus. Does that make sense? As the Bible moves from Genesis to Revelation, you learn more and more about God as it moves forward. It's called progressive revelation. You keep going and you keep going. This is why it's a bad idea to just start in one of the books of the New Testament. It really is. I've never picked up green eggs and ham and started with, would you in a box and would you with the fox? It makes no sense. You have got to start with, I am Sam, Sam I am. That Sam I am, that Sam I am. I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? You've got to start there. Because if you're in the box with the fox, you're sitting here going, where did the green eggs and ham come from? They came from Sam. You don't read the beginning, you don't know. It's no different with the Bible. You have got to start at the beginning in order to get the idea of God, man, sin, so that we understand this moment right here that we've been building up to. The God-man who saves you from sin. This is the idea. So notice, the law unfolded a portion of God's truth, but now that Jesus Christ is on the scene, He is going to unfold a progressive revelation of this truth. Look at the last verse here. No one has seen God at any time. I don't care what Benny Hinn tells you. No one has seen God at any time. He said one time that while he's shaving in the morning, the Lord sits over on the toilet next to him and talks to him. My question is, is why isn't his neck cut? I can't imagine shaving and the Lord's like, good morning, Jeremy. I'd be like, Gah! How do we know that? Because anytime he shows up, people fall down as if dead. Except Benny Hinn. Draw your own conclusion, right? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, and there's been some controversy about that because if you have the New King James or the King James Version, it says Son, the only begotten Son. It's a different manuscript. Is Jesus Christ God? No, let's not quibble over it, right? Silly. So notice, no one's seen God at any time. The only begotten, the unique God who is in the bosom of the Father. That's kind of some strange wording, but what is John getting out there? It means Jesus Christ, who abides perfectly, intimately, in connectedness and fellowship with the Father. In other words, the same thing we saw in verses 1 and 2. Look what it says. He has explained Him. He has explained him does anybody have anything different for the verb there explain what do you got he's declared him i declare is that the southern version maybe what else we got made him known anything else anything else okay this greek word here very good word ex ex gay i can't even say it exegeomai exegeomai yeah that's exegeomai there it is Hopefully. Pastor Steve, correct me later. The idea is to relate in detail. To expound 
upon him. One that I found was to lead out or when you are unfolding something so that it can be more clearly seen. Or let's back it up and use it this way for all of you that are in the Monday Night Final Destiny class. Jesus Christ is the exegesis of God the Father. He pulls the meaning out and unfolds it so it can be more clearly seen. That's the idea. $5 word, Scrabble, won't charge you for it. Exegesis, good word. Or let's say it this way, as we said before. Jesus Christ is everything that Yahweh ever wanted to say to the world. Why is that? Because only Jesus Christ can represent Him perfectly. He and the Father are one. I don't know what you pull from today in in seeing Jesus. I'll be honest with you, it's been a difficult study for me in these 18 verses. And it's just because there's no way to put words on who Jesus is in such a way as John is unfolding him for us. But here's what we find out. There is everything good about knowing him. And if I'm convicted by anything, it is, is that every opportunity that I have in my life to testify about the light is an opportunity that needs to be used for him. What does that look like for you? What is the focal point of why you are living? Is it to testify about Christ? Do you even care? I think that's an important thing to come to sometimes. Sometimes in America, we just come to church because that's what we're expected to do. If I don't, mom and dad are going to give me all kinds of grief, that kind of thing. Or do you realize that there is a God that infinitely loves you despite your deepest sin that you've been trying to hide and will go to lengths to cover up forever. He knows it. He sees it. It's not new to him. And yet he puts forward a Savior anyway. Because his love for you is not based on whether you deserve it or not. His love for you is based on his goodness because he just loves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ and who He is. Thank you that He is the Word. That He is the light. That He is the life. And that only He alone offers life. Thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist that bore witness to the light. Thank you, God, that Jesus makes you clearly known. And to look at Him, to see Him, is to see the Father. God, you know every heart here. Maybe we're indifferent about Jesus. Maybe we don't appreciate him right now in our lives. Maybe we don't know him and we need to. Thank you, God, that salvation is by faith and faith only. Faith alone in Jesus. Father, I pray that you Stir our hearts by your Spirit. Thank you for the grace that you continually give to be able to hear these words, to be able to see these words, to be able to lean into these words of our all-sufficient Savior. Thank you that you have given him as a further revealing of yourself so that we are not ignorant people, that we are not clueless 
Father, thank You that You are good, so good to us. So may You be glorified in this day. May we leave here changed people, more conformed to the image of Christ, pondering and contemplating the greatness of Your glory. We pray it in the name of Christ, our amazing Savior. Amen.